Hi, I'm Shashank Bhargav and you're listening to Three Things, the Indian Express news show. In this episode, we talk about farmers in Punjab deciding to remove blockades and allowing the movement of passenger and goods trains. We also take a look at the statements made by PM Modi during the G20 summit. But first, we talk about Jammu and Kashmir. On November 28, the elections for the District Development Councils or DDCs are scheduled to take place in the Union Territory of Jammu and Kashmir. The elections are supposed to revive politics in the region, which has been under the governor's rule since 2018 and has seen detentions of several local politicians after the August 5th decision when JNK's special status was scrapped. In these elections, people will vote directly for representatives who will have the powers to plan for a whole district and finalize plans that the panchayats and other governing bodies come up with. These polls are important especially because JNK does not have a functioning assembly right now. People there do not have elected representatives to address larger issues of the region. But in the days leading up to the DDC elections, things have been tense. Last Thursday, an encounter took place where four people were killed by the Jammu and Kashmir police. The authorities claimed that there had been terrorists that had been sent to the region to disrupt the DDC elections. The encounter and the recovery made by the police are revealing of the kind of terror strikes that the men had in mind. In this segment, we speak to Deepti Mantewari, who reports on government agencies for the Indian Express. And he starts by talking about what happened on Thursday morning when the men had been travelling in a truck. Around 5 a.m., this truck was stopped at Bantol Naka on a specific intelligence that it might be carrying some terrorists. When the truck was being searched, uh, the police received fire from inside the truck and the fire was retaliated. Two of the terrorists were killed on the spot. Then an operation began, which ran for another three hours. And two more terrorists were killed in the process. What the police recovered after the terrorists were dead from their possession and their bodies is what suggests that there was uh, a plot to carry out a big terror strike ahead of DDC polls. The police recovered 11 AK-47 rifles, which Deepdiman says is a huge recovery, considering that there hasn't been any such recovery of guns from one single spot in the recent past. So 11 AK-47, there were only four people, which means that they were not here to just enter the border and just go and storm some police station and, you know, die. They were here to carry these weapons to give to other people and then there would be they would be told about some bigger plan and an attack or some target anything is possible we do not have specific details exactly of what exactly they were planning they also had 7.5 kg rdx there were 24 magazines there were pistols and they had other items of navigation such as gps and digital mobile radio on which they were consistently receiving messages from uh, Pakistan. The police claim that the men belong to the Pakistan-based group Jashe Muhammad, the same group that, among other things, has been responsible for the Pulwama terror attack in which 20 CRPF personnel were killed. 
Now, apart from guns and explosives, Deepthiman says that the men were also carrying painkillers, diarrhea medicines, and other medicines which are generally found in the bags of fedayeens and other such militants when they are found dead. All of these medicines have been manufactured by various companies in Pakistan, pharmaceutical companies in Pakistan. So uh, there are telltale signs on the bodies of these terrorists that they were from Pakistan and that they were being guided at every step from Pakistan. What the police has also gathered from investigations till now is that they entered through the international border in Jammu and then they were picked up by a courier in a truck on the uh, Jammu Srinagar National Highway south of Samba. And they were uh, supposed to be taken to Kashmir when uh, they were intercepted at Bantol Naka and the encounter took place. After this encounter took place, Prime Minister Narendra Modi made statements about it on Twitter. In his tweets, he mentioned that the four terrorists belonged to the Pakistan-based terror organization Jaish-e-Mohammed, adding that, quote, our security forces have once again displayed utmost bravery and professionalism. Thanks to their alertness, they have defeated a nefarious plot to target grassroots-level democratic exercises in Jammu and Kashmir, unquote. It was quite a significant statement because generally encounters keep taking place in Kashmir. Uh, rarely does the head of the state, unless it is a, you know, a terror attack or the magnitude of, you know, say, Pulwama or you conduct a Balakot strike or something, that the head of the state makes a statement. But Prime Minister Narendra Modi not only held a high-level meeting with the Home Minister and top intelligence officials and the Foreign Secretary in the aftermath of the attack, but made it a point to make a statement against Pakistan and underlined that this attack was engineered by certain outfits in Pakistan. He named Jashim Muhammad and he said categorically that this was a plot to derail the grassroots democratic process in Kashmir and that to obviously referring to uh, the district development council polls which are scheduled to begin on November 28th. So he made it very clear that India had taken this attempt by Pakistan-based outfits very, very seriously and it was not going to tolerate any such interference by non-state actors into what India says is the first big grassroots democratic process after August 5 decisions taking place in Kashmir. These attempts to disrupt elections aren't new in Kashmir. Deeptiman says that every time there has been attempt to usher in any kind of democratic process in the region, Pakistan has tried to interfere. And this is largely translated into, uh, you know, killing of panchayat election candidates. Uh, there have been so many instances earlier when Panchayat election candidates have been shot dead by militants. And uh, you see, because there are so many candidates and they are at the grassroots level and they live in villages, they have their families, it becomes very difficult to provide security to each and every candidate. And so they become extremely vulnerable. He explains that one of the things that India always wants to show to the international community is that everything is normal in Kashmir citing that people are participating in a democratic process. Candidates are contesting elections and people are coming out to vote. But this is exactly what Pakistan doesn't want the international community to see. Because 
uh, it wants to show that Kashmir uh, has a popular uprising against India and that it is not being fueled by Pakistan, but people in Kashmir are being oppressed by India's security forces. And so they are rising in rebellion against the authority of the Indian state. So uh, this is why we always see that uh, whenever a democratic process takes shape in Kashmir, there is always some bit of attempt by Pakistan to interfere in the process and to intimidate people so that candidates do not stand for elections, do not contest, or at least people are scared to go out and vote. And that would come across as complete failure of a democratic process. And also that there is massive resentment among public against the Indian state. With only five days left for the polls, the administration is strengthening its security measures. One of the things Deepthiman says it's trying to improve is its intelligence grid so that more such attacks could be prevented from happening. And the other thing that the government is trying to do is providing security to candidates, since they are at immediate threat. So what the government has been doing is that they have been quarreling them into you know, these secure locations, into cluster accommodations at various places in Srinagar and elsewhere. But uh, this has also not gone down uh, well with the candidates who have been claiming that uh, because of this quarreling and being put in secure locations, they are unable to go out and meet people and canvas for the elections. So, uh, in fact, the People's Alliance for Gupka Declaration, which along with the Congress is fighting these polls in a coalition, and BJP is the other party. So the PAGD have been complaining that they are selectively being you know, restrained in secure locations and not being allowed to go and canvas in their consequences, which is not good for their prospects in the polls. And they are saying that, suggesting at least that this is being done because BJP sees that it is going to lose these elections miserably. The PAGD is the alliance of all the mainstream political parties in the region, and they aim to restore JNK's special status. They are BJP's main opposition and feel that these security measures, like Deepthiman said, are a way to stop them from winning. However, the state has been arguing that security is a real concern. Security of the candidates is a real concern. And it's not that people are not being allowed to go, that they're being given vehicles which are secured. And in those vehicles, they are supposed to go to their constituencies and come back the same day. They're saying that such arrangements are also being made for the BJP. So there is no discrimination. However, it is true that several opposition candidates are not very happy with the restraint which has been put on their uh, canvassing. Now, we had earlier mentioned that Prime Minister Modi had given statements on Twitter about the encounter of the four militants. But after that, India also responded to it at the diplomatic level. To talk about that response, Shubhajit Roy, Indian Express's associate editor, who reports on matters of foreign affairs for the paper, joins us. On Saturday, the Ministry of External Affairs summoned Pakistan's acting envoy here in New Delhi and lodged a protest and said in a statement that New Delhi, uh, the government of India, is firmly and resolutely committed to take all necessary measures to safeguard its national security in the fight against terrorism. What this essentially means is that 
the government can take steps to defend its citizens this shubhajit says should be seen in the context of the retaliatory actions by india in the past like when india carried out surgical strikes after the uri attacks in september 2016 and had carried out air strikes in balakot after the pulwama terror attack in february 2019 so if you see this particular statement in the context of the retaliatory uh, surgical strike as well as the air strikes it reflects the government's intent and its capacity to respond in a way that is not the norm for the last two big attacks shubhajit also points out the significance of the government mentioning jaisher mohammed in its statement the outfit which he says has carried out or has been blamed for all the major terror attacks in the last 5 to 6 years like those in uri pulwama and pathankot so essentially jaisher mohammed has again brought back on spotlight and that has essentially been a new delhi's argument that pakistan is still sort of fueling terrorist activities from its territory and which is directed against india he says that pakistan predictably has denied all the allegations and later on saturday night it summoned the indian envoy acting envoy in uh, islamabad and rejected those allegation calling them groundless unsubstantiated now you have to remember pakistan has also mounted a diplomatic offensive of sorts since last week uh, over the diwali weekend which went largely unnoticed they uh, issued a sort of a dossier sort of a thing documenting india's terror activities against pakistan so uh, they recounted for example the kulbushan jadhav case and sundry other cases to sort of uh, make this allegation that india is also fanning terrorism in pakistan so there's a definite pushback from islamabad side so in a sense india's aggressive stance starting from the prime minister's tweets to the ministry of external affairs summoning the pakistan diplomat in new delhi and then issuing a statement a strong statement all these reflect a indian response a pushback to pakistan's attempt to paint india as a country which is fueling terrorism so this is india's sort of government's response to that as well it should be seen in that light as well the other thing to note is that pakistan has been under intense scrutiny to take action against terrorism by the international community and by the financial action task force or fatf which is a paris based anti terror watchdog that has threatened to blacklist pakistan and the fatf is scrutinizing pakistan on a host of parameters i think more than 20 parameters in which pakistan has fallen short so far however it has been given time till february next year to achieve those targets now pakistan has taken some steps which has been seen by new delhi as piecemeal as not enough not sufficient and what india has always maintained that pakistan has to take credible sustainable verifiable and sort of visible action against terrorist outfits which are directed against india so that 
the terrorist infrastructure is dismantled in the Pakistan territory. But that, Shubhajit says, has not happened so far. Because of the reluctance or unwillingness by the Pakistan security establishment, which includes its military and its intelligence agency, ISI. And he says that this is something that the former US President Barack Obama also points out in his latest book, when he talks about the raid in which the terrorist Osama bin Laden had been killed. He says that it's, it was an, why they did not get Pakistan military or Pakistan government on board on the uh, Abbottabad raid was that it was an open secret that ISI and Pakistan's military had links with the uh, Taliban as well as even Al-Qaeda. So it's been uh, sort of documented by the former U.S. president as well in his book. So this kind of links are so evident, so apparent that it's very hard for India to believe that Pakistan has taken any credible action against these terror groups, which are being shielded and are actually being used as strategic assets by the Pakistan's military establishment against India. Dear listeners, before we move on to the rest of the show, I just wanted your quick attention. One of the big reasons people say they like this show is because it helps them understand the news better. It provides them with the context they need to see the bigger picture. And there is perhaps no other place that does that better than Indian Express's explained section. We on three things refer to the section regularly and it helps us make this show. If you're a regular reader of Indian Express, you know how useful the explained section can be, especially when you're looking for in-depth analysis by the right experts. You can log on to indianexpress.com slash explained and access the coverage 24-7. Explained by Indian Express, where news that matters is explained by experts who know the subject. Now, back to the show. And next, we talk about Punjab. For nearly two months now, farmers in Punjab have been protesting against the contentious farm laws that have been passed by the central government. The farmers fear that because of these new laws, they will no longer get minimum support price on crops like wheat and paddy, and that they would be at the mercy of private corporations. In protest, the farmers in the state have been blocking railway tracks that have led to the suspension of both passenger and goods trains. This blockade has been causing losses to the state's industrial units. But farmer unions have now said that they would allow movement of both passenger and goods trains starting today, that is Monday. In this segment, Raki Jagga, who reports on Malwa Punjab for the newspaper, joins us to talk about these protests. And she first points out that there are 32 farm unions protesting. And out of them, one union hasn't really supported this idea of allowing trains to run. So, we are not very sure that whether the trains will run on Monday or not. But otherwise, the idea which forced them uh, to take this decision was the continuous losses of industry. They had a couple of meetings with the industrial associations in Ludhiana and Jalandhar as well, which are the hub of the industrial segments in, in Punjab. And the industrialists and the Punjab industrial minister, he himself had said on record that the industry is suffering loss to the tune of 30,000 crores. And there are around 14,000 containers which are lying at dry port of Ludhiana, which are stuck at dry port of Ludhiana. So a number of industrialists, they are bringing the whole rake 
via road from Mudra port from Mumbai, and it's costing them for one rake, it's costing them forty five thousand extra. So, I mean, it's an overall loss to the economy of the Punjab, which I think it has forced the farmers to take this decision to allow both passenger as well as the freight trains to run on the tracks. The blockade has also led to the thermal plants in the state to be forced shut. This is because they have run out of coal, which the trains would bring in. It has also impacted the supply of 40 lakh metric tons of parboiled rice from Punjab to Bihar and eastern Uttar Pradesh for PDS distribution. Amidst all this, Rakhi says, the Punjab government has not been discouraging the protests. There are a number of rapid antigen tests of COVID in the mandis and all. They're not even telling the farmers to follow the COVID guidelines. The gatherings are in thousands at each and every dharna. But otherwise, they had a couple of meetings with the farmers. Initially, though, they interacted with the center and asked them that the freight trains should be allowed. But the center had said clearly that unless and until the passenger trains are also not run, we will not uh, run the freight trains. And when Punjab government was pressurized by the industry as well, then they had one meeting yesterday only. And uh, before that, the Punjab CM, he had issued appeals to the farmer unions that they should relent and they should rethink on their decisions. The other thing to note is that the blockade has been hurting the farmers themselves because now they are facing a severe shortage of fertilizers, especially urea, which is threatening their wheat crop. This is something that the unions told Rakhi the last time she spoke with them. So otherwise they said uh, their struggle stands as it is. Already they are sitting on dharnas at the toll plazas and also at outside at the stores of corporates. And uh, they are also sitting outside the houses of two dozen, around two dozen BJP leaders, the local BJP leaders, 24-7. That dharna, all those dharnas will continue. And at this moment, they are gearing up for that 26-27 Delhi Chalo March. So they said that their focus is now towards Delhi because Delhi has enforced farm bills on them. So hence, they are focusing on that march. Delhi has denied them permission to conduct a rally in Ramlila, Medan, and also they have denied that they cannot organize a protest in the parliament street. So they said they will go to Delhi, come what may, and wherever they will be stopped, they will sit there on, on Dharna. And they have no date when they'll be coming back. So their protest stands as it is, their demand stand as it is. It is just that they have allowed the passenger trains and for the larger interest of Punjab residents. Raki has been reporting on the protests since the beginning and last week had spent an entire day with the farmers. What I saw that, I mean, age doesn't matter to them. 87, 88 years old farmers, they are spending overnight in a tent and a 70-year-old farmer, they are there. I mean, they said that they are ready to sit here for two years, three years, or four years. It doesn't matter to them, but they will continue their protest against the government. And now, it's not more about the farm bills. They are having anger against the NDA government and particularly about against the prime minister. 
The other thing she heard from farmers was that they had been told by farmers in Gujarat that when PM Modi was Gujarat's chief minister, the Sikhs in the state weren't happy. They also told her that the NDA government is not bothered about Punjab. Already in Punjab, BJP was not a popular party all these years, they, although they had alliance with Akali Dal. But now, I mean, when BJP is out of that alliance, the farmers are having that personal enmity uh, uh, kind of a thing, you can say, that they show their dislike towards the prime minister as well in these dharnas and their commitment that they can sit for years as well in these dharnas. Raki says that this has now become a mass movement. During the protests, it's not only farmers, but it's also their families, their wives and children who accompany them. And how they collect ration, the dry ration, milk and all for all these dharnas going on. And every morning in the house, they keep one portion for these dharnas. I mean, if you say one glass of milk is kept aside for these dharnas and they, they just collect all those dry ration and they they just uh, provide them to the nearby gurdwaras. There the langar is cooked and then that langar reaches all the dharna sites. So what I have gathered that over the, over the last two months, this farmer's movement, it has become a mass movement and these people, I mean, they they are not having any political affiliation or more of and now our talks are also coming in within from the farmer unions that they should field their own candidates in the coming elections rather than depending on the political parties. In the end, we talk about the G20 summit, which took place over the weekend. G20 is a forum for international economic cooperation and its summit was attended by 19 member countries, the European Union, and other invited countries and international organizations. During the summit, Prime Minister Narendra Modi told G20 leaders that the COVID-19 pandemic is an important turning point in the history of humankind and the biggest challenge since World War II, and called for a new global index based on transparency in governance and the creation of a vast talent pool. According to the Ministry of External Affairs, the Prime Minister said that while the emphasis over the past few decades has been on capital and finance, the time has come to focus on multi-skilling and reskilling to create a vast human talent pool. PM Modi also addressed the G20 side event on safeguarding the planet and said that climate change must not be fought in silos, but in an integrated, comprehensive and holistic way. Inspired by our traditional ethos of living in harmony with the environment and the commitment of my government, India has adopted low carbon and climate resilient development practices. I am glad to share that India is not only meeting our Paris Agreement targets, but also exceeding them. He said that for humanity to prosper, every single individual must prosper. Rather than seeing labor as a factor of production alone, the focus must be on the human dignity of every worker. Such an approach, he added, would be the best guarantee for safeguarding the planet.
You are listening to Three Things by the Indian Express. Today's show was written and produced by me, Shashank Bhargav, and as always, was edited and mixed by our producer, Joshua Thomas. Before we go, here's another reminder to check out Indian Express's Explain section. You can log on to IndianExpress.com/explain and find in-depth analysis by the right experts. It has everything you need to know to understand the news better and see the bigger picture. If you like this show, then you can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcast. You can also recommend the show to someone you think will like. Like it, share it with a friend or someone in your family. It's the best way for people to get to know about us. You can also tweet us at Express Audio and write to us at podcast at IndianExpress dot com.